As George said, we are going through the life of Paul. Uh, we have seen, and we're stepping back down to take a look at his life. What started to change Paul? We've seen he had an adopted mother on Mother's Day by the name of Rufus, uh, his mother who took him in and he adopted. Last week we saw in his first missionary journey the incredible things of how God used him. But really what changed Paul? And ironically, the thing that first changed this brilliant mind of his was an enemy of his by the name of Stephen. The first martyr of the church was a busboy. And he, was, he waited on tables. And the first martyr was a deacon. Afterwards, we might select a few deacons to stone ourselves, but uh, we're not going to do that. Let's take a look at this. If you have your Bible, you take it out and stand with me for the reading of God's and Word and turn to Acts 6, page 890 in that Red Pew Bible. Acts 6, verses 8 through 15. Stephen has been filled with the Holy Spirit and they've got arranged false charges and they're going to try to put him to death. And here is his response. If you weren't here last week, we're adding a liturgical line to the reading of God's Word. When I get done reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord. And what you'll say out of gratitude for God giving us His Word, you'll say, thanks be to God. So together as God's people, let's read verses 8 through 15 out loud. And as you read, listen carefully, you're reading God's Word. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The sins, the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. I have a question for you. How, how smart do you think you are? Do you think you're smarter than the people you're sitting around? Take a look. What do you think? Are you? What's your learning potential? I tell everybody that I actually have a photographic memory. I just have no film in the camera is all. But... Uh, Sometimes, you know, we forget where we're at in life and we think we're so smart. And isn't it hard for men, is it not true, to ask for directions? Why did they wander 40 years in the desert? Because even then, men wouldn't stop and ask for directions, as they say. But it's told of a couple, maybe you've heard of that, that uh, they were went down to Disney World for the first time. They drove down, an older couple, and they came up and it said, Kissimmee. And they thought, how in the world do you pronounce that? And he said, well, obviously, it's Kissami. And uh, she said, no, I think it's probably kissing me. And, nah. and so they said, well, let's stop. So they stopped for breakfast. They pulled into Burger King and they went up to the counter and they said to the woman, now we've been debating about this of where we're at. Can, can you tell, and tell us, because I know Southern accent, real slowly, where are we? And she said, Burger King. <laughs> well, the question about learning potential. We're going to study again this morning who I think 
was one of the greatest minds who ever lived. And he used it against God. Saul of Tarsus. Saul is one one of my great heroes. I named my son after him. He was not omniscient. He certainly was not sinless, we'll see. He was flesh and blood, a person like you and me. The only difference is he was probably the most sold-out human for Christ that I have ever heard of. This brilliant mind, we know that he speaks at least five languages from the book of Acts. Taught by Gamaliel, the Aristotle of Judaism of the first century. And he hated these Christians. He loved the Torah, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, Talmud and its teachings, and the things of God. And these new Christians, this follower of this Jesus was stopping everything. And he knew that the old must stay and the new must be done away with. And the person that had the greatest influence on his life, ironically, was his enemy, Stephen. Saul was taught by his enemy. You and I need to let that ring in our bones because you have enemies. Probably more than you think because they're talking to me about you. And how do we let our enemies influence us? We have to realize we need to learn from our enemies. Not imitate them, I'm not saying that, but learn. God wants to teach us something from everybody. And by the way, your enemies, if it's spiritual, the closer they get to bending the knee to God, the harder they will fight. And we're going to find out about Saul. And never, ever underestimate the power of simply planting seeds of God's love in the heart of some of those people that are against you the most. Stephen, his name's Stephan, which means garland, like what they would give to the Greeks when they won a game. Before he dies, he literally sees heaven because heaven is already in him. And Paul, Saul, watching how he dies, God will use to change the man that God simply changed the world with, Paul. And you and I, with the mission that we have to help make Los Angeles the greatest city for Christ in America, and it'll take all the churches and all the ministries working together to do this, we're going to make enemies along the way. And if we learn, the bottom line this morning is, are we influencing them or are they influencing us? It makes all the difference. If you have your Bible, let's turn back and take a look at this. Turn back over to Acts, the sixth chapter, and verse 1, page 889 in your pew Bible. We must learn from our enemies. Last week we celebrated Pentecost Sunday. This is Trinity Sunday where the church uh, around the world celebrates the mystery that we worship not three gods, not one God that appears in three different ways, but one God in three persons. And there's no good analogies to the Trinity because God is not one in a series of events. If you ever want to know what God is like, you look at His Son, Jesus. He is the visible image of the invisible God. And we celebrate, and the church is exploding. Pentecost has happened when we read this. And starting in verse 1, chapter 6, I want you to see the qualifications to somebody to be a busboy in the first church. Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists, those are Jews, but they're Greek Jews, complained against the Hebrew, the Hebraic Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the distribution of food. Isn't it great to know the first church fight was over coffee and donuts? Isn't that great to know? (laughs) And it's not just that they weren't getting, you know, a little snack after worship. This is the daily distribution. They liquidated all their assets together. And so there's racism coming up here. Verse 2. And the twelve, notice the delineation of the different groups here. Those were the, the apostles. 
called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we for our part will devote ourselves to prayer and the serving of the word. Now, pause. They're not above serving tables. They're doing it. But they're saying it's a gifted area. And my job is not more valued than the ministry that you have or the people over here that usher or our Sunday school people or those that are taking their lives in their hands for Jesus and directing traffic. All those people that are out there serving and it's the same thing, but it's different skills. And the apostles said, we've been trained and we know the word and we walk with Jesus. And if we don't teach them, they won't be taught. So go find somebody that knows how to fling a bagel. No, this is amazing. Good standing, that means above reproach, full of the spirit and of wisdom. By the way, these are the qualifications later that Paul will use for elders. How does the church find somebody to volunteer? Well, if you get them on the phone and they're groggy enough and you talk them into it, you go, you're the one. Or you say, can you fog a mirror? You're, you're qualified, come along. And they're saying, no, 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 this is holy stuff. And they're not talking about skills here. They're talking about character. Verse 5. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. By the way, do you notice the names? They're Greeks. They're Jews, but they're Greeks. It was the Greeks that were complaining. This is great leadership, that their widows were being left out. So they delegated the people with the complaints, fellow Greeks, let's appoint them to serve. And what is happening is that all of a sudden now that they set aside this guy named Stephen. And Stephen begins and he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you turn over to the next page that we saw in verse 6, he's doing great wonders. And the local religious leadership of Judaism is enraged at this. Because this follower of the Nazarene, they're saying Jesus is alive and they trump up all these false charges on him. Now, what I want to point out is, what you do is not so important, though it is as much though as who you are. You know, there's a difference between making a living and what you're living for. And you know, when we stand before the Lord, I really wonder... Whether God's even going to know, let alone care, about the careers we chose. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying that it just doesn't matter. But what's going to last is not your career. It's who you are. And that's why the most important thing is what you're doing for the Lord. Sometimes the, the real passion you have in your life won't pay for any of the bills. So you have to do it on the side. I was a chaplain for the Denver Broncos for a while. I remember a meeting with them. By the way, if you want to talk to a group that's not listening, talk to a group of NFL players before a game. Uh, they're a little zoned out. Uh, and then they would say, excuse me, what'd you say? And so they would pick me up and ask me and then set me back down. Uh, and one of these uh, gentlemen uh, actually was a, a pro bowler. He a uh, huge guy. And if you ever asked him at a party what he did, he'd say, I'm a painter. Because he loved to paint. And by the way, I saw his paintings. They were terrible. They were just terrible. Uh, but he loved to do that. He says, you know, I play football to buy my paint stuff. Uh, he, what he did was, I'm a painter, but I have to do this little NFL thing on the side. Next time someone asks you what you do, 
Try this one. Tell them, uh, I'm a follower of Jesus. It'll be a very quick conversation, by the way, uh, when you do that. <laughs> and then say, but on the side, this is what I do. Well, these guys were, they had met the risen Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit, and they're saying, whatever we do, you know, that's not, have you noticed the Bible is incredibly nonchalant about who you marry, what you should do, where you live? It's kind of like, whatever. Those are the things that we're totally into. I'll tell you what God cares about. How you do what you do. And for what reason you do what you do. And so Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, and our enemies in life, and he starts to teach them, and as they grab him and these trumped up changes, notice it says that his face, in verse 15, became the face of an angel. That doesn't mean all of a sudden he went from ugly to handsome. It means that there was this glow. He was so filled with the presence, the Spirit of God, when he got up front, the people were literally intimidated by his presence. Not because of his great oration. Your enemies. And enemies are people that are against you. On relational grids, sometimes there's the axis of for you or against you. Down in the far bottom right-hand corner is adversaries. They're against what you're doing and they're against you. Then over here there's opponents. They're not against you, but they're against what you're doing. That's how you can have sports. Teams aren't really against you, against that. Up over here in this corner is collegial. They don't necessarily like you, but you're on the same team. They're what you're for. And then the ultimate is allies. They're not only for what you do, they're for you. Your adversaries, the ones that are not only against what you're doing, they're against you. We can learn from them. I say I'm not imitating them, but later Saul, who they call Paul, will say, count all people better than yourself. What? Am I really supposed to think they're better than me at everything? No. He's saying, everybody has something to teach you. God can do that. And so you have to treat them and realize what God can use them in your life. And you know, this incredible move of God. So what he does in chapter 7, the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen replied, remember I told you last week, Acts has more sermons than any book. He literally rehearses from Abraham to Moses to David, the entire Heilsgeschichte, the German word, the holy history of the people of God. He rehearses the whole thing. Why? Because they didn't know it? No, because at the end, talk about not having a need to win the crowd over. Look at verse 51. This is how he winds up the sermon. I'm going to try this today. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised and hardened ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit just as your ancestors do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and you've become his betrayers and murderers. You were the ones that received the laws ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. He's not just trying to blast them. He's saying, change. Change. You're heading in for destruction. You and I, I want to tell you something. We're called to love these people out here in this world. I don't care what they believe or don't believe. We're supposed to wash their feet and open doors if we have to lay down our life for them. Whether they are a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Jew, secular, communist, it doesn't matter. You and I are called to lay down our life. And if you love them that much, you'll tell them the truth. And the truth is, you perish without Jesus. I was asked this past week if I would go to a gathering and if I would do the prayer. I work a lot within the Muslim community, not as much, a lot in the Jewish community and with Buddhists and interfaith dialogues. I do this all the time. 
And they said, we want you to uh, pray. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> the night before, the morning before, they said, by the way, make sure you don't use the name of Jesus. I said, it would be offensive to the different groups we have here. I said, well, you don't want me to pray. And they kind of laughed. They said, yes, we definitely do. Just don't use Jesus. Pray to the name of God. Pray to the name of, of all the different faiths. And I said, no. I don't pray. I don't go before the Father without the Son. They said, funny, that wasn't their response. Uh, I said, you know, I'll celebrate. I'm not going to have an altar call, you know, or pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit for all of you. But I can't pray. I'll give my blessing to you. Uh, and I'll tell you that either Jesus is the Savior of everybody or he's the Savior of nobody. And you and I are called sometimes not to be obnoxious. Now, when you're persecuted, by the way, Jesus said you'll be persecuted for you being a fool. You get no points for that. Do you know what I mean? Some of us, you know, we're just mean to people and snit them and cut them off and say, and then they're down on us and we go, well, we will be persecuted, you know. And God says, no, no, you're just obnoxious. That's the only problem here. I'm talking about when you're loving and you do what's right and they come at you. And by the way, if you're going to stand for what's right, they're going to come at you. This world doesn't care what you believe as long as you just zip it and sit down and shut up. You keep it to yourself. Don't you make waves. And you and I aren't allowed that. Jesus, do you know what we owe Him? We owe Him everything. And He loves them. He's not angry at them. He wants them. And this is a real ball game. Only God does the final judging. You and I don't. But the fuse is lit and everybody's going to stand before him someday. And he's either going to be savior or he's going to be judge. You may not like it. You're going to get a perfect body. And you're going to spend eternity with God or you're going to spend eternity banished from God. The choice is ours. And this is what Stephen was saying. And so the closer they got, the matter they got. And they were enraged. Look at verse 54. So he calls them you stiff-necked people. Let's read 54 over through 8 chapter, the third verse on the next page. This is, let's read this together. This is their response. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. And Saul approved of their killing him. That day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. The closer they get, the more fierce they're going to fight. Some of the way you know that you're making progress in someone's life that you're loving and trying to help is the more they fight you. A beachhead is always where an enemy force will put the most forces because a beachhead, if they ever lose it, knows it's the beginning of their end. 
And very often there are beachhead ministries and places that will fight so hard because you're coming so close. Saul watches him die. And how he dies, Stephen says, just like Jesus. Father, into your hands, only says, Jesus, I commend my spirit. He's praying like Jesus because Jesus is so in him. And as they are beating him to death, he says, Lord, don't hold this against them. Hey, I want to tell you, if I was going to be stoned to death, I would say, as Lord, I'm going to die. But let me just pop one of them, just one of them, <laughs> throw one back. And he says, no, why? Because he's already there. If right now God split this time, space continuum, and you could see right here, the angels and Jesus cheering us on in the saints. Do you know how different you'd live your day to day? If you could see who is watching and encouraging, saying yes. And our enemy is not flesh and blood. It's not people. Paul said that. It is against the high hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan himself uses flesh and blood. Your beef isn't with people. Now, that doesn't mean when somebody's against you, you go, well, I know why you say that, because you got a demon. That's why you do that. <laughs> no, no. It, it's but what you're really struggling against. Stephen had people watching him as he died. Paul so enraged, it says he ravaged the church. When you got condemned to prison in the first century, that was pretty close to a death sentence. This was not a jail where you got three hots and a cot. These were normally holes in the ground. They chained you down there. You stayed in your human waste and they would throw food down to you. And if you ever made the docket, you might get out. More people died in prison than by execution. And he hates these Christians. And Stephen dies question would be, what do you think Stephen's friends or maybe Stephen's family thought as they watched what Saul did? Through this series of the life of Paul, we've been doing different witnesses of people that may have interacted with Paul along his life. If Stephen had a brother, and he probably did, what do you think he would have thought of Paul if you talked to him later on? Watch this. My rabbi used to say, we have to learn from our enemies. That's a lot harder than it sounds. Have you ever witnessed the stoning? I have. It's horrible. The most disgusting, grotesque thing I have ever seen. While they're burying the accused waist deep in the ground, there's another group of men solely responsible for gathering the stones. The one image I remember is a man, they call him... Paul now. He was the man that accused my brother of blasphemy. He didn't throw one stone, no. He was too busy collecting the men's cloaks so that my brother's my brother's blood wouldn't splatter onto them. Paul was more concerned about a man's cloak and my brothers. A few years later, I got a visit from him. I recognized him right away. It was Paul. Said that God had met him on the road to Damascus, changed his life. Said there hadn't been a day gone by that he hadn't thought about what he did to Stephen. said that Stephen had taught him more about God's love 
than any scholar or prophet could. There hadn't been a day that gone by that I hadn't thought about Paul. What I would say to him if I saw him, what I would do to him given the opportunity. See, my hatred for Paul was something I had grown accustomed to. In my mind, Paul was a coward, picking on the weak. And then the, the strangest thing happened. I saw a man, a man who I hated. A man who, who took my brother from me. I saw him shattered, begging for my forgiveness. And then I realized for the first time that I needed to be more like Paul. I can't even believe I'm saying those words now. I was actually learning from Paul, my enemy, the man who I would murder if given the chance. You ask me if there is a God. I'm living proof. What Paul did, we often say, and so Stephen died, and we forget what that was like. And what haunts Saul of Tarsus, until next week as we'll see when he meets the risen Lord, is how this man died. It wasn't just that he died because it was a mistaken execution. It was that he was praying for his enemies. Not only can we learn from our enemies, and yeah, even the ones against you, God has something to teach. And realize the closer they get. Have you noticed you pray for somebody's life? You pray for a family member and it doesn't look like they're heading towards heaven, but they're heading more for hell faster than they ever were before. That's very often sometimes God is answering prayer and He's showing their need and bringing them around. But don't ever underestimate planting the seeds, not the full-grown trees, just the power of the seeds of God's love in lives that you think would never change. And so Saul will watch this. And this, this incredible conviction all the time. And you know, all of us, I tell you, we have all our lame excuses for why what we do. Isn't it true very often ourselves that we'll put all these defense mechanisms? You know, I, I, all these people like will tell me. And I agree. Tithing is, you know, money's a great example. A lot of us, it's funny, the people I might say that give don't mind sermons on tithing that I find. As long as it's truly tithing versus just some kind of wacko fundraising kind of charlatan thing. But I mean, they don't want, it's the people that don't give that it always bothers. And when you get close to the Lord and you find you realize very often all the things we said, well, I did that for good reasons or I did this, then we find out, no, we had a lot of defense mechanisms. Why don't we tell others the sin of silence? 95% of most Christians, as far as they know, have never brought one person to Christ. 
I don't mean that you're in charge of the reaping. God needs a sower and a grower and a mower. Some fruit is really ripe and you just harvest it. You know, it's just right there. I, I think I've told you, a lady came in one time. I was on the way to an appointment and she was... Uh, she said she had problems. I said, I got five minutes. And she said, my husband, he died and he's back from the death, dead and he's haunting me. This is a true story. I went, whoa. Okay. Uh, I said, well, you know, I don't think your husband's haunting you, but have you ever given your life to Christ? And she said, no. I said, well, let's pray. So she did. She became one of our deacons. Now, I want to tell you, that was hardly because of the astuteness of the person God was using called me. This is just ripe fruits. And that's the question is, have you invited people to church? And if you're embarrassed of Bel Air, find somewhere that you're not embarrassed of, where they're preaching the gospel and say, come. Don't overestimate putting these seeds in here. And Stephen haunts him when when we get ready on this uh, tour that we're going to, and to stand in Ephesus. And the excavations that are unbelievable in this huge theater arena where they were, we'll find in Acts 19, as they were gathering, they were going to kill two of Paul's friends. They said, Paul, don't go there. They're after you. And he stands next to them and he dresses the thousands of people. He didn't care whether he died. Where did he learn that? From Stephen. He watched Stephen say, who cares whether God takes me or not? I belong to the Lord. And so he learned to do that. And this wonderful life that we can have. And is the reason we are completing this site with all the changes. And why you're sacrificially giving and as I am and we all are for this. And why we're trying to advance the mission and help other churches and ministries downtown and, and in other places of the world. Is because that's what God's called us to. And the craziness of this city. My goodness. And you know what people need? They just need someone that slows down a little bit with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and just listens to them and cares for them. That's what people want. You don't have to have all your doctrine zipped up. My goodness, and if we're going to help do this, we need to just mellow out a little bit. You can actually resign from being CEO of the universe this next week. Do you know that? (laughs) Rumors told me there's a God out there and He's pretty good at that. You don't need to be. You're going to say, Lord, I'll just take care of my life and to love others. To march into the industry, a lot of you in the entertainment, and not to be producers of schlock, of a quality, but of quality message as well. And to get into the marketplace with everybody out there playing funny money and selling mutual funds and things that aren't worth the paper they're written and say, no, I won't do that. To be in the schools where you're at, not run around with Jesus loves me, I don't know if I like you stickers, you know, they're around there. But kind of like, no, just being salt and light and wherever you're living. And don't ever, ever underestimate how God can use you. When we get to eternity, will it be a blast? I mean, it's almost like, I guess that's why they call it heaven. And do you know the people that the Lord will say, come here, come here. I want you to see these lives that I used you in. And you'll say, God, I had no idea. They said, of course, because if you knew, you'd get in the way and mess it up. But you have to be faithful. Marturios, as we speak of Stephen on this Trinity Sunday, just means witness. Not the demon-driven fanaticism of radical Islam where you blow up innocence calling yourself a martyr. That's right out of hell. A martyr is someone who says, I love somebody so much that I stand for the Lord and you can take my life, but I'll never stop loving you. Some of the emperors until Constantine were very vicious on the church. 
Domitian, Diocletian, certainly even Nero when the Bible's being written in the New Testament. Some of them were fairly nonchalant. They always had a problem with Rome, though, as keeping their troops in line. In 315, nine years before Constantine would usher in a Christian empire, Emperor Lucinius had a problem in the fighting in northern Gaul and the crazed Germanic tribes that were up there is that he wanted allegiance from his troops. And so they, you know, sacramentum, when we do the sacraments, means my heart is Caesar. It's an allegiance. And you had to do a pinch saying Caesar is Lord. The famed 12th Legion, one of their crack legions, had 40 Christians in it. They were Romans, but they were Christians. And they said, we can't do this. And they said, you will give a pinch of incense to Caesar. You will take the oath or you'll be killed. Do you know what decimate means? It's a Roman term. If they ever fled in battle and they survived, every tenth person stepped out and their fellow troops had to beat them to death. That's what decimate means. These Romans are serious about war. And they said, you will do this. Some of their best troops. Nope. They said, our armor... Our bodies belong to Rome, but our hearts belong to Christ. So in the middle of the winter, and they said, the commander said, then you will take and you will drop your armor, you will take off your clothes and anything that represents Rome, and you will stand in the middle of that frozen lake all night until you recant and come to your senses. And they dropped everything, and they walked out bare, and they stood there. As the hours went in this bitter night, all they could hear was singing and praying as they huddled, Slowly, one by one, they fell to the ice dead, frozen to death. As morning came, one of them had survived, and he thought to live would be better than to die. And he crawled toward the edge of the frozen lake. And the centurion, who was watching, when he saw him crawl up, took his robe off and put it around him, and took all of his armor off and put it on him. And he, naked, walked out and took his place as a new Christian and died. What moved them was not that they died, but the peace and how they died. You have no idea but God does when you leave here today and you say, Lord, teach me. Don't make enemies. Like they say, friends come and go, but enemies last a lifetime. I don't know if you know that or not. But don't try and try to make enemies. No, 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 no. Be makers of peace. But the people that come against you and get ready for it, don't be weirded out. And say, Lord, teach me through this. And I pray for their blessing, not their curse. Don't enable their sin. I'm not saying that. And you know the ones you're praying for when they're fighting really hard? Back off of this Jesus stuff. Smile. Because what's happening is the Holy Spirit at night is just knocking on their door. And you go out this next week and you plant a seed and see what God does. Jesus said, you have heard it said, hate your enemies and love your friends. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you. And Paul said, therefore, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Heavenly Father, as we come before you and we realize that we were your enemies, 
We pretended that we weren't fighting you, but you were calling and we ran away from you and we shook our fist in your face. And Lord, you lovingly tracked us down and held us in your arms even as we screamed until we let your love save us. If there are any in this room right now, you feel at enmity with the God and you feel that the Lord, there's another voice speaking besides mine and you know it's Christ. Jesus says you don't need to memorize the Bible or run around this building But all you need to say is, Lord, I believe you hung on that cross and shed your blood for me and that you're alive, Lord, and that you're coming back. Lord, I want to repent. I want to change direction. I don't know what it means, but I take all I know of me and I give it to all I know of you. Lord, come and take over my life. And right now, you'll start a relationship that will last forever. Thank you, Lord, for this great love. Thank you, God, for the men and women that have paid the price. Thank you, God. You don't want us to be running around afflicting pain on ourselves or others but to share the love of Christ. And Lord, now as we come before you with our tithes and our offerings, what a holy privilege it is. I pray, Lord, that you'd bless the gifts. I pray those that can only give a little, Lord, sustain them, show us how to help. Those of us that can give a lot, teach us the wisdom of stewardship. And may all the glory go to Christ, your Son. And, O Lord, send him back soon. We will meet him someday. In his name we pray. Amen.